discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. people it is mexi just jumping on pre-intro to the podcast to let you know that maureen and i don't actually get to talking about the workshop that she is hosting next month until the end of the podcast so if you are interested in that stay tuned until then or send us an email at veganvanguardpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested, it's going to be a facilitation for social justice workshop series held July 5th through 7th, and it's going to be fantastic. Stay tuned to the rest of the episode to hear all about it, but we just realized that maybe not everyone's going to listen all the way to the end, and this is important to, to say up front. I also want to apologize because there is a very yappy dog in a apartment that is close to mine. And so you can hear this little dog for quite a bit of the episode, but luckily Maureen is the one who was talking more <laughs> in this episode. Uh, so there's not too much of uh, yappy dog and, and Mexi speaking. Anyway, with that said, let us dive in to the real intro to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It is Mexi and Maureen. <laughs> so excited to have Maureen back on the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to be back. As you know, I'm kind of yes. nervous too because I have not recorded a podcast in many moons, but a bit out of practice, but I'm sure you're going to be super great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. Um, our audience always asks about you in just the sweetest way. I know that all of you listening have been really interested to hear how Maureen's doing and what she's been up to. And uh, I guess out of respect for your privacy, I always kind of act like it's it's, it's something I can't talk about. It's it's super serious. Or sorry, not super what? serious. Super, it's super serious. <laughs> okay. It's super secretive. <laughs> It, oh, it's super secretive. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You're, I'm getting a bit of a stage fright now. It's not super secret. No, it's not super secret. But I guess, yeah, when people <laughs> ask me, I'm like, oh, should I just tell them or what? So I'm always just like, oh, she's doing something really cool, but I can't say what it is. It's very <laughs> <Maxie>. mysterious. <laughs> oh, man. Right. So anyway, the suspense is built and uh, people are going to be really excited to hear this. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah. It's true. I sort of ghosted the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I completely respect you for. I recently deleted Twitter and it's oh, you did. the best move I've ever made. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. you didn't tell me about this. Oh, I didn't? No. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's gone. Yeah. Oh, it's gone. It's been so liberating. I just... I felt like while I was on there and just kind of participating in the hashtag discourse... I I honestly I felt like it was hemming me in. I felt like there was a lot of things that I was saying or content that I was making because I was 
I, I guess, you know, expected to speak to this quote unquote community that I was supposedly a part of, but mm-hmm. just increasingly didn't want to be a part of because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be part of this discourse. I don't want to be part of this. So it's been it's been great. So I very much, very much uh, respect you ghosting the Internet and just moving on to do this. These amazing things. Yeah, I've never I've never been on Twitter and I don't know. I don't really know how it works, but I know that once you're once you're in it, it's like a it kind of sucks you up. Yeah. But but I remember just so many times talking to you where, you know, you were really upset by something that had happened on Twitter that was quite frankly very violent and like discredited mm-hmm. all of your work all of a sudden, or there was like yeah. drama that was going on with another creator and kind of zapped your morale understandably yeah yeah <laughs> and i think we even had a did. conversation where i was like this is happening this is the only times when i hear you being so distressed is when something has happened on twitter you know and yeah yeah i'm sure you're not alone in that scenario definitely not and it's just it's so silly right it's, it's i just i was embarrassed to, to actually feel so distressed over something that is seemingly so you know insignificant but it always felt really violent and insignificant right so yeah i mean it is we're we're not wired to be able to handle like hundreds of hate comment at a time like no one can weather that yeah and it's like yeah i get the whole argument that oh it's not or or feeling shame oh it's not really a part of real quote-unquote real life you know why is it why is Mm -hmm. it getting to me but it is part of real life like that's what yeah yeah totally Anyway, exactly. So. And just having so many eyes on your every word is just not healthy for anyone. Right. I think. Yeah. So well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. And congrats on everything that you've been doing since ghosting the internet. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So should we dive into it? Sure. Are you just interviewing me? Yeah, I'm gonna basically interview you. But yeah, we'll have a back and forth conversation as yes. well, so it won't be super dry and awkward. Um, but what Maureen has been doing that I've been very secretive about for this whole time has been facilitation and starting her own facilitation business, I suppose, um, but really just organization. And um, yeah, she's been on a, a journey from, I guess, a few different organizations that she's uh, been spearheading. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about your journey into facilitation. We're not going to name the names of the organizations that you created, uh, just, you know, for your privacy. So I'm not sure what to call them. Maybe like alpha and beta. <laughs> sure. Which is which? No, I mean, it's it's essentially just one. I don't know. The project has morphed into mm-hmm, into something mm-hmm. slightly different now, but we can just go with one name. Yeah doesn't matter which which name we pick. We can call it Bob. Okay, Bob. So Bob as a project has evolved. Bob as a project has evolved, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I thought we could start maybe with talking about facilitation in general um, as a teaching style. So for people who aren't really aware of what it is, why is facilitation so effective at getting students to really reach these kind of like aha moments around social justice issues in particular? Mm. Well, facilitation is, I would say it's, there's a spectrum with maybe facilitation on one end and then lecturing on the other, and then teaching would be somewhere in the middle. Um, And I go back and forth between facilitation and teaching. I mean, it's essentially like there's so much overlap, right? But, Mm -hmm. but facilitation is the, the intention is to have students or participants in a group really have agency in driving the conversation 
um, and asking open-ended questions so that students can actually, and open-ended questions that have an element of allowing them to talk about their personal experience with a topic. And then from that personal experience and from hearing other perspectives in the group, being able to make connections between the different testimonials or the different opinions, and then using what we have observed in this space with all of us um, in order to extrapolate larger insights about what's going on in society. Um, and sometimes that is also reversed. You know, we go from a theme that is in, we, we go from exploring a topic that's out there in the big world and then seeing how it affects us. But it really is empowering students with the understanding that what they bring to the conversation is themselves and that they have that their that their point of view is valued just because no one has had their own like their specific experience and so so really speaking i also always tell my students like to speak in i like in i statements from their own personal experience and and really ridding ourselves of the illusion that there is some kind of neutral narrative that we just need to learn and then pair it back. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really, really powerful. And shout out to our common dear friend, Alexis Fawn, who mm. brought some of this stuff up on our episode around radical education for youth and kind of radical education in general. And I just, yeah, I think there's so much power in that because I guess I come from a sphere like I come from academia where it is very focused on lecturing mm -hmm. and so you're basically you know in my academic career when I was a student I was basically lectured at and of course the, the professors would ask really challenging and kind of open-ended questions or maybe we would kind of work out those things in tutorials and things like that um, but it really was kind of like okay here's the information and then you're absorbing it and then I would come to aha moments myself but I'm not sure that every student necessarily did. And then also, you know, I'm a lecturer now. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's just difficult with the format, but I definitely am wanting, like I have been trying to work in more of these kind of, you know, open-ended questions and allowing the students to actually dialogue themselves and come to their own conclusions. Cause I feel like that is really where you do internalize things so much more. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like if I want to teach people, I think the most important thing is teaching people critical thinking skills so that they can take that into any scenario that they're in and still have a really great critical perspective because if if they're just listening to me speak and then internalizing that but not really internalizing how to think critically then they're just going to go out into the world and then someone's going to give them some other information then they're going to be confused so they're going to be like oh well mm -hmm. i I don't, I don't know what to think now but it's like <laughs> that's that's the whole point it's like teaching people how to think i guess or like you know helping them to to realize the knowledge that they already have and and how mm -hmm. to put that together, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that does. Mm -hmm. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think that there absolutely is a place for lecturing and for like more traditional um, teaching in some cases, because mm -hmm. the thing is like students don't know what they don't know, right? Like, yeah, they very much do sometimes need that information that yeah, because it's like we, we can do a lot for countering dominant narratives just in the classroom, listening to each other and sharing our experiences and, and being challenged with open ended questions. But at some point, like there also needs to be some historical facts laid on the table or some, you know, mm -hmm. um, so yeah. I've actually 
uh, yeah, I've somewhat departed. Like I definitely facilitate, um, but I also, some of my classes are structured more like mini lessons, you know, where we watch videos or, or I'll present some kind of like historical fact, especially around, for example, like my unit on whiteness and white supremacy and colonialism. Like you have to go back and look at that history for how race Mm -hmm. was created in the 17th and 18th century, because students have never been taught this information. So Mm -hmm. they have all these ideas about racism, like especially because it's very much in the current discourse um, and they have stances you know, they they think they know where they stand. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, asking them a simple question, like, so like, what is race? They're like, uh, you know, like, even a question like mm-hmm. that can, um, can start to get at like the confusion that people have around like, exa- you know, how it was constructed. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, just to say, I think that I think that both are both are necessary. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I guess a lot of my lectures are really, it would, I, I definitely need to deliver a lot of content and, and history and context mm. and stuff to them um, before we can have any kind of meaningful conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I am still really interested in kind of, I guess, learning from you and from others like Alexis Fawn about how to incorporate more of these kind of like activities that really, mm-hmm. um yeah, empower them to come to their own conclusions about things, because I think that's really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so maybe let's talk about Bob, specifically. (laughs) Like, who's Bob? (laughs) Right, who's Bob? Uh, So what inspired you to start Bob? Mm. And how did you kind of work towards that? How did you develop your facilitation skills in order to get that that off the ground? And I guess maybe describe what Bob is. Sure. So I would say that it started... uh, back in college, um, was like the main, uh, like inspiration for it. I was part of this group called, it was called Femsex. Now it's called All Sex. And it was essentially a group of 12 to 16. I think I, my group was on the smaller end, like 12, let's say 12 students, um, that came together. We came together twice a week for two hours a week, which is a huge commitment in college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, when I think back yeah. to that, I'm like, wow, that was a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just a student led group where we would come together each, each session and each session had a different theme. So, and it was all around like female sexuality. So it might be um, menstruation, masturbation, like boundaries, kinks. Um, There's also a lot about power and identity and gender expression. And I came into this, I think I was, it was during my second semester of college. And the only reason I signed up for femsex is that a couple people on campus just told me, oh my God, you need to do femsex. It completely changed my life. You know? And I was like, well, what is it? And they were like, I, I don't know. I can't even really describe it. It's just like you get in a room and you have conversations and it just, it's just life-changing. Like you have to do it. So mm-hmm. here I was a very like basic, like I had like basic person. Like I had never interrogated anything about like gender or sexuality or capitalism or power and privilege. Like all those words were completely foreign to me. Um, I mean, especially because I went to high school in France. So yeah, words like heterosexual or whiteness or weren't even words in my vocabulary. And so Mm -hmm. going into this group was really life-changing because all the 
So it's facilitated by two students who have done femsex before and who now have a curriculum that's pretty loose. And you you go into this room and usually you've had a homework assignment, you know, like, um, let's say the session on body image, it might be like, draw your body image, you know, or, or taken like some kind of object that re- that has been really important in shaping your viewpoint around your self-perception or whatever. And then we go around the room and we share what that object or drawing or poem or, or whatever is and how it relates to us. And I just remember being completely blown away by... Like, I mean, so moved by hearing the testimonials of, I mean, it happened to be all women, it, men and non-binary people could also join uh, femsex, but they, anyway, it was all women in my group. Um, But hearing their experiences and like the commonalities of our experiences, even though they presented so, so incredibly differently Mm -hmm. was just, yeah, like really life altering to me. And I just remember thinking, wow, I haven't even gotten this deep with like any of my friends. And I barely even know these women's names like in in the class. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't like a group therapy situation. It wasn't like we would come in and just like spill our guts about like all the, you know, our past trauma or whatever. It was really like the topics were pretty um, curated, but the empathy that it built, like the connection that it built between me and these people, I was like, honestly, I had the thought, like, if, if everyone could go through an experience like this, like, we'd have world peace. Like, it was mm. it was just amazing. And after um, after being in femsex, I uh, became a facilitator for femsex um, for a couple semesters. And I loved going through that experience, too, like, facil- being a facilitator of these conversations. And also realizing that, like, every single conversation looks different because it's all centered around our experiences and every conversation is with different people. So, mm-hmm. and I loved doing that so much. And I really believed in like what was going on in this like little tiny room. I was like, this is, um, I mean, I can't stress just how, uh, how different it was than the conversations that I had been having elsewhere. And also just, I was learning so much and I was like, I'm learning way more in this room than I am in my classes. And Mm. I genuinely think if we had had an experience like this in high school, so much of the shit that I went through in high school would not have happened. And like, honestly, Mm. like so many of the people that I know wouldn't have gone on to like do business school or corporate law. Like they would be trying to change (laughs) the world. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and uh, then I facilitated in different organizations. I did um, this organization called um, which like is pretty present on pre- on college campuses. I have a lot to say about which is not that interesting to our listeners probably, but it was um, facilitating like health ed to underfunded schools, like high schools in the New York area. Mm. And I taught about... Um, abusive relationships and healthy nutrition, I think is what it was. When I look back on that curriculum and like what we were told to say, I'm just like, I really hope we didn't like (laughs) cause eating disorders or like nutritional malpractice. Like it was actually like really messed up when I think back to it. Damn. But um, yeah, there's just so, I was like, it's so irresponsible to like get people from like a college campus to go into schools with high schoolers and like talk about calories you know and yeah. like wow yeah anyway maybe maybe I shouldn't be saying this on air because I they they have probably <laughs> revamped their curriculum but anyway 
And then I did, anyway, I did this other, this, I was part of this other organization called, um, that was like civics education for high schoolers. And, um, yeah, that, that was, that was a great experience for the most part also. And, um, anyway, this is such a long winded answer to your, to your initial question. That's great. Yeah. No, this is important back context. Okay. (laughs) Well, then I, um, went on this went on this research grant and lived in Argentina for a couple of years and started my YouTube channel and started the podcast with you and uh sort of like stopped stopped being in relationship with like high schoolers or edu- but like still doing a lot of education through my channel like cause I I really do love that but being mm-hmm. much less in conversation with actual real people yeah and I just started to really, really miss that. I reached a point of like burnout on my YouTube channel where I, I realized like I loved making the scripts for my videos and I love the research that goes into it. And I love the process of like articulating an idea so that people mm-hmm. get that aha moment. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't really like I don't really like being in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um I don't really like I, I always hated getting behind the camera and just like having to edit the video and, and put it out there and get so many comments like on me as a person when I was like, oh, yeah. I, you know, I want these ideas to be engaged with more. And and I always mm-hmm. had this feeling of like, oh, I, I really want I'm so passionate about getting this information out there, but I sort of hate that I have to be the person who delivers it. And like yeah. to some extent, I feel like that with podcasting, too. I get kind of nervous mm-hmm. and I'm like. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could just say all my ideas like through someone else and I wouldn't have to be the <laughs> one like saying yeah. them, you know. Um mm-hmm. anyway, this will this will tie into Bob shortly. Um but yeah, so I was kind of stuck on on what to do. Um I was doing a lot of um tutoring for test prep with high schoolers. Ew, gross, I know, but you know, girls gotta <laughs> eat. And um yeah. yeah, I was just realizing like I love to be in conversation with these high schoolers. Um, like I was doing some SAT tutoring at some point. I know I'm gonna get canceled for this, but anyway, yes, the SATs <laughs> are horrible. And um, but but I would use these like tutoring sessions to at the same time like have conversations with the kids about the texts you know like actually the SATs have some like pretty okay texts you know like some very um some very capitalist some like introductory like poli-sci stuff which were Mm. was fun to engage on and have conversations with like the students about or some like introductory texts about like the suffragette movement or you know things like that like so they were kind of like the very tiny redeeming experiences I would have doing that tutoring Um, yeah. And I just really had this realization, like, I love to be in contact with, with students. And I think it's because also at, during high school, like I had such a, my mind was so colonized that I am like, I just feel like if I was in contact with someone who had presented to me these ideas earlier on, just the course of my life would have changed. I mean, I'm so, so privileged yeah. that I got access to all those ideas later on and, and through college and stuff. But yeah, I think I, I strongly identify with, with high school students because of because of that reason. Just because yeah. also high school, like puberty and stuff, it's such an intense time. Like I remember that time so so vividly like everything just felt so important Mm -hmm. and 
And it was also just the peak of when I really internalized like everything about patriarchy and just became so incredibly concerned with like how I looked and, um, you know, the sexual experiences I had and Mm -hmm. yeah, like looking back to it, I was like, I wish I had had someone who had explained to me like what bisexuality was, you know, or like what the male gaze was or yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that students, like kids, I call them kids, but <laughs> have so much more access to that now, you know, with social mm-hmm, media. Mm-hmm. It's just wild how much everything has changed. But again, actually, I think some school, some students do have access to that, but there's a lot of students who still don't, you know, or like I'm mm-hmm. always, and and the algorithms are yeah are made in such a way that like a lot of them don't actually get that kind of information and they get information no. that's reiterating you know like really really harmful yeah norms so i had this idea of basically i was like i you know loved facilitating in college and i have also become newly passionate about all of this information to do with um, animal rights and environmental justice and capitalism. And like, I've been doing all this education through my channel. So why don't I try to combine the two, um, and make a program that, you know, where I can talk to high schoolers about all this stuff and have conversations with them and basically do what I did in college, but just like (laughs) save these kids a few years of pain (laughs) by trying to bring these conversations to them sooner. (laughs) And so, yeah, it started pretty small. I just made a website. It was bad, but I was just trying to get something up um, on WordPress. And then when I, I, I first started by just uh, constructing three different days of workshops and reaching out to high schools, seeing which one which ones would be interested in me delivering the workshops at their school. Well, no, actually, at first, I thought that I was going to rent a room and just be able to get students that way to sign up to a workshop. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually how things work. The learning curve is so steep. Like, it really is. Like, I tried so many things that just did not (laughs) work. But (laughs) eventually, um, it started to work. And um, I notably gave uh, those three workshops at a high school. And it was terrifying if I'm perfectly honest. Like at first I just went in and, uh, yeah, like was having all these, um, yeah, these uh, drawing from my experiences with all sex and with these other organizations and with what I knew, I really constructed God, my lesson plan for those three days where it was so, um, was so structured just because I think that's very, it's very common of new teachers they will yes. like pack their classes with 15 activities and 25 uh, different readings and conversation prompts because they're really scared the students won't engage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or that it won't la- it won't take up as much time as, as I totally. think it will. And then it's going to fall flat. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. like, well, now that I've been in the classroom a lot, it's actually okay if your class ends early and you're like, okay, now yeah. you have 10 minutes of study hall or whatever. Like, that's fine. Um, yeah, honestly, that never happens in my classes, though, because 
because we all talk a lot, but um, yeah, it's really not horrible if that happens, but I think that's so scary as a new teacher. Yes. And so I structured those three days just, I I mean, it was filled to the brim with activities and I spent so long researching online, like different activities and making games. And the thing is, once you get in the classroom, like everything is different than what you expected it to be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that, so that happened, but the, the three days went well. I mean, I look back now and I'm like, whoa, I've learned a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think back to some experiences and I cringe, but th- that's also what being a teacher is, is like there are some days for me where I feel just elated with how well everything has gone. And I feel like the students have had so many aha moments and I'm just like, I'm the shit. This is so great. I love doing this. And then there's other days where I yeah. walk out and I'm like, I'm never going to teach again. I've permanently like yes. messed up these students. <laughs> like I, you know, they were so bored and they hate me or, you know. Yeah. It's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, it's really soul crushing. It if, really is. Like a, a session goes badly. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it just really makes is. me spiral. Me too. Um, me too. But yeah. But what, like, so maybe tell people, um, like, what were the the sessions, like the, the workshops oriented around, like, what were the topics that you wanted them mm. to engage with? Um, in those first workshops, so I remember one activity that I started the class with, which is still to this day remains one of my favorites, is just asking the students um, to introduce themselves and to tell us the story of their name. And I, this activity is, I didn't come up with this. I read this somewhere and I think it's fairly um, spoken about, but asking the students, like, for example, my name, um, I have a Spanish last name. So I always talk about how Actually, my family moved from Spain into Algeria, like in the beginning of the 20th century, like during the colonization of Algeria, and that that actually Spanish immigrants were not, I mean, they were still above, um, they were still considered, I think they were still considered above Algerians, um, mm-hmm. like European, set, because they were European settlers and, you know, Algeria is being colonized, but they were still kind of like... Um, bottom of the barrel immigrants. Um, like th- there was such a hierarchy amongst like Europeans who came to Algeria. And I think it's in 1905 that France started getting kind of nervous that all these other European immigrants were coming to their colonizer land. And there was like a naturalization act whereby everybody who was European or there was like a list of nationalities became French. And yeah. So they were just like declared French um, from one day to the next. And this is actually oh, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, colonialism and oh, whiteness, oh, right? Oh, like, white supremacy. Exactly. Yeah. All settlers are now French. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're all now <laughs> French, which, you know, as a Spanish immigrant was definitely a step up from being Spanish and also allowed you all these privileges in this, this colonized French Algeria. And Yeah, it's even, I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on this, but actually when my grandfather was born, the school teacher forbade or strongly advocated against his parents teaching him Spanish Mm. because, you know, now he was in a French school and actually like Spanish was a dirty language and that, um, you know, it would just confuse him to be taught Spanish. So all of his brothers and sisters spoke Spanish and they spoke Spanish at home, but he never learned it. Um, He only ever learned French. That's really bizarre. So, yeah. Anyway, but so it allows me to tell tell this story of like how my 
family and how a lot of French families, like my dad grew up in Morocco until he was 15. Um, and there in, in French, we call them pieds people who then, oh, anyway, it's also fascinating because obviously people who were colonizers, um, were given land, you know, and a set of resources. And even though like their family was not rich by any means, like obviously they escaped like famine from Spain by, yeah, but anyway. by s- settling. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so it allows me to tell that story of why I have a Spanish last name. Um, mm-hmm. But everyone has such fascinating <laughs> stories about about their name. Um, and I remember in that first class, actually, I had um, in the class, there was a trans student who shared the story of his new name and the fact that like his father had helped him pick out this name because he thought it was really beautiful. And he just told this really moving story that was like such a gift for the class to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. We had, there was another student who shared that her name, I think her name was Allegra, that it sounded like vagina in her home country and that like all these people had made fun of her for it. You know, like, Uh anyway, it starts to build a lot of empathy. um, And Mm -hmm. yeah, a small activity like that is just um, really interesting. And then making connections amongst the names too and um, making the point that like, historically the people who have been able to keep their names are usually the most privileged like how men mm-hmm. get to keep their name and just yeah. <laughs> their their wife takes on their name um or obviously how enslaved people were were stripped of their name like when you strip someone of their name it's one of the first things you do to take away their dignity you know same thing in the holocaust mm-hmm. and so 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 the way that i usually construct activities is starting with you know, a basic activity like that where where everyone is able to share on the same level, you know, or on the same kind of playing field and then and then really using that to um make connections and guide the conversation to uh like a, a place where we're actually reflecting on topics that are larger than us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like generally getting people to think about yeah, history, power, privilege, systems of oppression mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I tried a lot of th- things in those three days. I also, um, we did a unit, like the third workshop was around like social activism and sort of a workshop where we were talking about like issues and social change around those issues and trying to design a solution. And like that was such a learning moment for me too, because honestly, there... It's good to be like to think creatively about how we want to shape the future. But when you tell people who are like really colonized into a a mindset, you know, like come up with a solution for social inequality, you know, or for whatever issue, environmental issue they pick, like they will design an app, you know, or they will (laughs) talk about, they will talk about, oh my God, I once did a really depressing activity. So I got this activity from Adrienne Murray Brown in Emergent Strategy. So she talks about like generating headlines of the future. And we yeah, do this we on did, our podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, do you know this activity? And then I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, my God. Generating headlines of the future with high school students. Literally one out of two of them will talk about like colonizing Mars and like oh. having Elon Musk elected for president. Elon no. Musk. Is that his name? It sounds weird. Elon Musk. Yeah, that yeah. is his name, and it is weird, and he's weird. He's weird. <laughs> yes. 
And not weird because he has Asperger's syndrome. Weird because his ideas are. Weird because he's a horrid fucking. He's a horrid fucking person. Loser. Capitalist. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, so you know, we get a lot of that. Um, a lot of things are about also just like, you know, electing someone that has a solution to like a tech solution to a problem um great anyway so just the headlines of the future like they're not in a place to really generate that maybe after now i have like the entire year with them so it it can lead to like much more interesting conversations if it's done at the end of a semester but like if you have a day with students and you're trying to have conversations that revolve around anti-oppression and social justice like my advice do not generate headlines of the future right away (laughs) you know so because then you have to pick apart everyone's headline and be like okay well that sounds like um you know ethical capitalism let's talk right. about that right. <laughs> exactly you're like thank you i really really appreciate your contribution that we're gonna have an army base on mars that's gonna be able to yeah. bomb um nations that uh have terrorism or right. you know like great Ah, okay. Yeah. Now we need like six classes to undo the fact that that was just said in the classroom, you know. Yeah. Um, like, let's do just a quick biography of Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, so or or like, you know, solutions that Apple is going to come out with. Oh, good. You know, some kind of product or anyway, so I've learned I've learned differently now. I don't do that activity mm. quite so often. Mm-hmm. It's really that if if I have a very very um progressive or like, you know, enlightened class yeah. that I will venture into that territory. I actually did that with my class which is first year university students mm. and and it went really well. But that I it was basically at the end of a full year of of time with them. Um mm. so yeah, yeah that worked out yeah. yeah but in in one session i could see that not going very well <laughs> no <laughs> no no um but i could i mean if you want i can tell you a little bit more about the classes that i do now yeah well okay okay so that was bob and then how did bob evolve into new bob oh that is the bob now <laughs> i see well <laughs> So after those three days of workshop, luckily they did go well enough that I was able to keep um, working with the school and they were like, why don't you come in and do several units, you know, so I started working with them for three months and then that went so well that they were like, oh, do you only have a month's worth of classes or like would you have like a year's worth of classes and I was like oh I could a hundred percent do a year's worth of classes um and so that's been what I've what I've been doing all year um is I've just been like in the classroom a lot and working on curriculum all the time Mm -hmm. and really figuring out like what works what doesn't like I've just been learning so much and and designing new units around my my first unit really delves into the complex I mean how to have a dialogue how is dialogue mm-hmm. different than debate what are some of the ways that we're but that we can generously listen to each other what does that mean like what does it mean to listen to someone without formulating a response in your mind um before yeah. before actually answering them then really going into like cognitive dissonance and identity protective cognition. And that's essentially like mm. the little, ugh, 
that we get when we receive a piece of information that conflicts with our sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it is the best case scenario, but usually it's like outright anger or denial. Um, yeah. and, and just kind of priming the students with the understanding that that's going to happen. Like I do a few activities just around cognitive dissonance too. So where they get to experience like little pieces of cognitive dissonance throughout the class and like reflecting on like what that means mm-hmm. and, and kind of thinking through reframing conflict or disagreement in the classroom as a jumping off point. So I say like, you know, we're not going to sh- shut off conflict or or um try to like stamp it out and move on to something else when it does arise but rather try to get curious around like why is it that you think like that um Mm -hmm. like when I have a student that makes a problematic remark I'm never like no that's not that's not right like here's the fact you know I'll be like I really appreciate you sharing that and actually like a lot of people think like you First step, like, does anyone else have a different point of view in the classroom? Because so many times, like, someone else will actually take care of that comment for you. I mean, it sounds like I have such an agenda, which, no, I'm not saying take care of that comment for you, but, like... The agenda is liberation. The agenda is liberation, exactly. So, so, like, if somebody says, like, oh, you know, like, poor people are lazy, or if they just worked harder, like, they would be able to, they would be able to accumulate wealth. (laughs) <laughs> Not that they really use that vocabulary, but, you know, they would be able to get rich. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll say like, oh, that's that's an interesting point. I'm sure I'd like oh, I know that a lot of people think like you. Does anyone in the classroom think differently about this mm-hmm. um, or or say, like, have you had a personal experience that has led you to think that way um, or, oh, OK, it sounds like you're talking about hard work leading to professional success like do, how much do you know about mobility, like social mobility and like mm-hmm. social class in this country? Like how, you know, because yeah. because then you can talk about how actually like if you're if you're born into mm-hmm. a certain social class, statistically, you are much more likely to stay in that social class than to like, yeah. quote unquote, move up the ladder. Right. So there's like a lot of different questions that you can ask and um, student input that you can get to actually like not shame the student for thinking that way, but really asking them, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really asking them why they think that. And also every time you're just a question like, oh, do you have a specific example of that? Or like, oh, what in your own life, can you tell us about the story of someone who like matches that description? Because a lot of times like they'll be like, well, I don't know, that's just common sense, you know, or like we just see that yeah. in in the movies or like everyone knows, oh my God, that everyone knows. We just knows. see that in the movies. <laughs> yeah. The quote, like everyone knows that this is what happens um, is is super common. And, and that leads me to my third unit, which is around like the assumption of neutrality and dominant narratives and like what is a dominant narrative? Mm-hmm. It's right, something that's been said over and over so many times that we just think it's neutral. Yeah. When in fact it's not, right? Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, I have I have this character who I've I've like impersonated dominant narratives in my classroom as um a person named Professor Culture. And <laughs> I I got the inspiration <laughs> from reading Ishmael and um in Ishmael, they talk a lot about mother culture, mother culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what that's what she's called. So so Ishmael, if you've read if you've read Ishmael, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, you know, it's it's a great series of books, but it's it's a gorilla called Ishmael who asks like his um, students 
So in the first book, like he's asking his student, can you can you tell me like what mother culture has told us about uh, why you go to school, for example, mm-hmm. you know, or why school mm-hmm. is important. And so the dominant and mother culture, mother culture is just like the background music to our lives, right? Mother culture, like, so, so you might say, oh, what, a, well, you have to go to school because that's how you learn to read and that's how you can get a good job. And that's like how you get smart or whatever. So in my class, um, mother culture is named professor culture. And I present them with many different, many different visuals for professor culture. You know, sometimes he's just like a, a, a little like clip art of like a white male old scientist, you know, um, <laughs> and, you know, I really stress like this person, he's not the embodiment of like sex of like extreme, like sexism or racism. Like you have to think of professor culture as just like the narrative that is that we bathe in. Like if you went out on the street and did like a man on the street interview and you asked somebody like, what do we go to school or what should we eat or why do we have to buy food? Like, it would be what they say, like the reasons that they they come out with. Um, and like, that is a master narrative. That is the dominant narrative. Um, and mm-hmm. so a lot of times I'll ask my student, like, I'll start a conversation by saying, like, what would professor culture say that race is, for example? Or what would professor mm-hmm. culture say that disability is? And so it allows them to say what they've heard about it without being potentially like embarrassed about saying something that is quote unquote problematic. Um, yeah. Or, you know, and then, and it also, you know, I can ask them like, Oh, what would professor, you know, if the question is like, um, why would professor culture say that heterosexuality is normal? Mm-hmm. You know, they might say, well, that's, it's because you need a man and a woman to procreate. Um, or it's, you know, that's how you like women and men are, are psychically psychologically different so so yeah the most complete unit is with a man and a woman and then I can say like oh what would professor culture how would he react if I said um that actually homosexuality is natural because we see it everywhere in nature and you know they might say like well he's he might tell you that like why are you trying to confuse everybody like everyone knows that's (laughs) not true or you know like it's it's very fun to dialogue with this person this hypothetical person yeah. And and then also later on in the units, that means that if my students say or get really defensive and say that, like, well, everyone knows that X, Y, Z or well, like, that's just common sense. Like, dude, like, why are you, you know, I'll be like, oh, like, interesting. Like, what does that phrase remind us of, you know, or like, yeah, yeah, because we've studied like exactly how how master narratives are reproduced Mm -hmm. so like i would say that those are really the foundations kind of like what is dialogue what is cognitive dissonance what is um what is a master narrative and then Mm -hmm. really getting into structures of oppression like ableism like white supremacy like patriarchy um i'm working on a unit right now on speciesism and animality i would love to work on a unit with you about like environmental justice um, oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, I could talk about like pedagogy all day and night because it. I love it. Yeah, I and me. I I I love hearing about it as well because I'm like, oh, that's such a great and powerful tool to use. Mm. Um, and like thinking about how I could incorporate that into my own work and my own teaching. But yeah, I just think that's incredibly powerful. And I agree. Like when I was in high school. I wish that I had learned about dominant narratives and cognitive dissonance and all of this other stuff um, because I was really uncomfortable in high school. I remember, you know, because that is when you learn just like viscerally 
mm-hmm. about like your place as a woman under the patriarchy like that that's how you learn you just like viscerally by absorbing it you know absorbing the male gaze and like what that does to you um and I remember being really angry all the time and just like really depressed and um like I was very counterculture. Like I was, I don't know if you have mm-hmm. ad busters there, but it's kind of like this counterculture. Um, it was like anti-capitalist, but it didn't really explicitly talk about capitalism, but it was like anti-war and stuff like that. And I was really into that stuff and just whatever was counterculture, I was really into because I didn't have language for it, but I knew that all of the stuff that I was absorbing from, you know, the dominant culture or society um, made me feel terrible and really uncomfortable. But it wasn't until university that I started learning about, you know, the social construction of everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And that just blew my fucking mind. I, I just, it, I don't know, it just made me feel so amazing because it was just kind of validation for all the stuff that I felt internally, but that mm-hmm. I had no language to express. And I didn't, yeah, I just couldn't put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like giving that to students in high school is like incredible like that like that's where it needs to start Mm -hmm. because if people don't go into like if students don't go into social sciences or anthropology or whatever they're not going to learn any of this stuff they're just going to go from high school absorbing all the the shit um from our oppressive you know systems Mm -hmm. and then just go into business and then just Mm -hmm. never question like never learn critical thinking and never learn about dominant narratives and just Mm -hmm. end up parroting this shit on like man on the streets or whatever Mm -hmm. so yeah i just think this is so powerful and yeah i could absolutely listen to you talk about pedagogy all day (laughs) because i'm like yes more of this Mm -hmm. i also think it helps activists in general of like when you're talking to to people who aren't necessarily your students right just talking Mm -hmm. to people about leftist issues and and social justice issues right Mm -hmm. um and being able to use some of these tools around cognitive dissonance and and dominant narratives to kind of Mm -hmm. help them reach their own conclusions you know so Mm -hmm. yeah definitely definitely yeah i think even having a classroom space where you're telling your students like the master narrative is not going to have it's going to be your opinion and and people can like we all have been influenced by like dominant narratives but mm-hmm. it's not going to your argument or your opinion is not going to be like is not going to be stronger just because it's a dominant narrative so that means right. that like every single person in the classroom can share something and it's not just because what you're saying aligns with common sense or with the way we've always done things that your opinion is going to be the right one Mm-hmm. And and that's something I I talk about um, right away too in in dialogue versus debate. Like the point of a debate is to win an argument, um, and the point of a debate is to prove another person wrong. You listen mm-hmm. in a debate just because you're waiting for a weakness in someone's argument that you can counteract. Mm-hmm. You don't actually add your knowledge just because you're adding to like the common pot of knowledge and you're trying to get a better perspective. Like you you have to go in it being convinced that you have the right answer, yeah. and you know, kids have learned to debate like their entire school career. Like this is something else that I'm baffled by, um, that schools talk about social change and collaboration all the time, yet concretely the education the students receive is about debating. It's about pitching mm-hmm. ideas to one another um, and learning effective presentation skills to get buy-in. And then the grading system, which just pits students against each other and just makes them like, how are you expected to think creatively 
when thinking creatively could lead to like you getting an F and potentially then not not getting into co- the college you want or something, you know, like the, this for these kids, like the stakes of grades is huge. So, mm-hmm. so like at one point we need to start really aligning like our assessment practices with, with what we want the kids to come out of school knowing how to do, because if we're just teaching them to like pitch ideas and debate the entire time, um, that's, that's what we're going to get, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my creativity was just thoroughly beaten out of me by my my time in academia because it was like, no, that's not going to get you published. That's not going to get you anything. Like, you can't take risks. Like, that's what you learn, basically. Right. You can't take risks unless you're like an entrepreneur or kind of that kind of a risk, you know? Yeah. Which isn't really a risk anyway. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, I was um, thinking about. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to move on unless you want to um, keep talking about pedagogy at all or maybe how you like how you design your activities um, and like what your process is for that. Um, sure. Well, I, I answered that a little bit by saying like I always try to kind of put components of of like empowering the students to share their personal opinions of things and then actual some like historical nuggets or whatever you want to call them that actually presents to them some kind of alternate narrative. I really try to, students love, and and adults too, right? But like when when you feel like you have agency over an activity, like any little bit of agency goes so far. So one thing that I did in the beginning of the year is I, and this took me a long time, so I know that not all teachers are going to be able to implement something like this, but I did a, a, a coronavirus mixer and I got this idea from um, a book by Rethinking Schools that did like, what was it called? Like environmental mixer or something like that, that um, staged like different um, different environmental activists and had them talking to each other. But so the coronavirus mixer, I, um, I inspired myself from that. And every I created 20 profiles um, with the help of a few other people. I created profiles where... Like, you know, one of them was like a, the profile of like a health worker working in North America. Like another one might have been a, a child living in India um, and having a and, and going through like the first lockdown. Um, a kid in a suburban area outside of Paris, a kid in like a very wealthy school inside of Paris, like a, a disabled person who's at home in lockdown and just realizing that like everyone is experiencing the same, the, you know, a life that is similar to them and being able to telework um, and all, all the accommodations that are being made for a, for non-disabled people to adapt to this, this pandemic. And anyway, mm-hmm. there were a lot of, uh, of different profiles. And then I had, a, you know, every kid was one of the, you know, a, a different person. And then the whole thing was about like answering kind of like a speed dating round where they had to like meet each other and answer different questions. So like ask each Mm. other about their experience in lockdown, um, ask, ask each other, like what would help them, what would help them through this time. It was very interesting. Jeff Bezos was one of my characters too. Um, yeah. So like, he was like, you know, it's been like, it's been hard. Um, but he was talking about like, you know, the, the billions that he's gained, um, from the pandemic and, Um, the fact that he's, you know, he's saying like, he's congratulating himself because he's like paying his employees like 13 bucks an hour now due to like, and like 
bitching about unions or something, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, and, and it's really interesting too, like after that hour. So anyway, I had all of them talking to each other and answering questions. And then we debrief as a large class. And it's very interesting to see how much they've impersonated their character. Like they've taken on their character. Like Jeff Bezos literally becomes just like outraged that anyone thinks he's not doing everything that he can <laughs> to yeah. um, fight against the pandemic. You know, oh, I had like an indigenous activist from um, uh, from a tribe in Brazil who directly speaks about like in his testimonial about like what Jeff Bezos is doing to the Amazon. And so it's very interesting uh. to see them be in conversation with each other. So yeah, like any activity like that, where like, I, I really like theater and I like assigning characters to my students um, mm. because it just makes the conversation like a lot more interesting um, mm. and it gets them much much better engaged anything that has to do anything that is like lightly competitive too I hate to say it but it's very um it's very effective so like I designed an activity recently where um it was in our ableism unit where the students had to circle so we have like a big talk about like what disability what you know what professor culture say disability means and what the dictionary definition is and then I pass out a sheet where I've compiled 70 different differences just like human differences um and like some of them are illnesses some of them are just like different physical traits and personality traits um some of them are like you know, what students would consider obvious disabilities, whereas other ones are like much more unknown. And I tell them you have 10 minutes with your partner to talk through, to talk through like which ones are considered disabilities, you know, and they'll ask me like, well, what do you mean by that? And I'll be like, that's, that's it. Like, that's, that's the only, like we've analyzed the dictionary definition. So according to this definition, like what is considered a disability? And then at the end of the activity, they have to um, count up how many that, how many they've selected, how many they've circled. And I, I pretend like there's a right number to circle, right? You know, I'm like, whoever gets <laughs> yeah. the right number, like, is going to win this competition this or whatever. Jelly you know? beans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's just so interesting because after that activity, first, it's great because it makes them learn about all these disabilities that we never talk about. You know, like I have like fibromyalgia on there and endometriosis and um but then I also have different different traits, like extroverted versus introverted, you know, or nearsighted, farsighted, like black, white, Asian, um, mm. autistic, you know, dyslexia, ADHD, things like that. Mm. Um, and then at the end of the activity, I go around and ask them how many they've circled. And almost every time they've circled, they, their numbers are completely different. Like in my last class, they went from – uh, I think 12 to like 58 or something, you know, and then we have this really cool conversation about like, why are the numbers so different? You know, like what conversations did you find yourself having with your partner to determine if this was a disability or not? How would this exercise, you know, and then, and then after like further on, cause the conversations can last like the entire hour after like a good, powerful activity that's made them really mm -hmm. the, like given them substance for reflection I can ask them, you know, how would this activity look different if we did it a hundred years ago? Like, how would it look different if your parents filled this out? Like, what terms would they be confused about? Mm -hmm. What would be considered offensive to be to be circled as a disability now that was considered a disability like 50 years ago? You know, things like transgender and homosexuality mm -hmm. and homosexual and like 
how would this vary if we did it outside of the classroom here? Like, you know, is anyone from a place where this would look really different? Um, how about like if there were certain accommodations that this person was able to have, you know, if this dictionary definition, literally the dictionary definition, by the way, of the Merriam-Webster is something along the lines of like a disability that is no- notable enough that the person can't engage in gainful employment. Wow. What? Yeah. Yep. What? Yeah, yeah. That's, I think, like the second definition. Um, I mean, I like have them. Gainful employment? Yeah. Fuck that. Um, it literally said, okay, so it's an impairment such as a chronic medical condition or injury that prevents someone from engaging in gainful employment. What no. the fuck? So, um, so like that, that's really interesting, right? I mean, we've I mean, seen how that has yeah. shifted with the coronavirus. It's like, mm. well, all of a sudden, all these people who, couldn't have engaged in gainful employment before can set, can now engage in gainful employment, you know? And like, obviously there's so many other barriers than like a physical illness that will keep someone from being able to engage in gainful employment. Like the fact that capitalism is structured to have a mm-hmm. class of unemployed people at all times, you know, but anyway, yeah. I don't, I don't bring that in quite so soon, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, that's brilliant. Like a brilliant way to talk about like social model disability and stuff like that. And like, I love the COVID, the acting activity that you you just talked about. Like, I just mm. think that's so incredible. I love well, it. Yeah, like those are yeah, the, brilliant activities. The ableism one is is really interesting because, and and you know, I pull on the work of, of like great activists that have educated me on on the social model of disability and how. The Merriam-Webster just defines it as like, it's the condition that keeps you from doing all this stuff. But actually like a worksheet like that allows us to see that conditions like being nearsighted, right? Like would not, would not qualify someone as disabled now. Um, but it would a hundred years or 500 years ago. Um, yet the condition hasn't changed, right? It's remained Mm -hmm. identical in those two scenarios. So it's actually like, there's so like disability is socially constructed and that your ability to participate in daily traditional activities is Mm -hmm. determined by, you know, how the medical field diagnoses you and how, um, and like what accommodations are available to you. And, um, and if society considers you like normal or not, like it really is all about that, like our cultural definition of normal and how that shifts. Um, Yeah. I love those. Yeah, so like that that one has been good cuz anytime you like give them a handout and they can like engage in an activity, I just find that it, it's really important I found in my classes to just like switch up what they're doing often, um but especially mm-hmm. like the the medium that they're engaging with. So it might be a handout, maybe watching a video, um it could be like having a dialogue, it could be um you know, doing like a movement activity. You know, I have a whole activity too with like pennies and them like picking up pennies anyway it's been hard actually this year with coronavirus because kids can't get up from their seat right so yeah yeah I've had to rework a lot of the the things that I do but yeah oh I just love that yeah I these are brilliant brilliant activities (laughs) um and I just it's I I feel like it's kind of a skill in and of itself to kind of get in that headspace to to be able to create an activity like that will get people to reflect on the things that you want them to reflect without you having to teach them um Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's really like an art so just congrats on (laughs) on designing like really amazing activities thanks it's so much trial and error you know yeah you do it and then 
and then it either works or it doesn't or yeah Yeah. I was like oh that would have been a really good follow-up question like luckily too since I have FaceTime with like a hundred like the entire grade which is like a hundred students like I get to do an activity several times um so it's always just so much better by the time I I'm like on take four then yeah that makes (laughs) sense that makes sense yeah it must be so rewarding though um yeah I want to talk about how it's landing with with students um but yeah it must be really awesome because I think I'm kind of feeling (laughs) I'm feeling similar to the way that you felt when you were kind of like I need to get away from my YouTube channel not that I necessarily want to get away from my YouTube channel but that like um it has felt I guess less rewarding and I feel like engaging with people in real life is feeling more rewarding. Mm. Um, leaving Twitter was great. Um, and I, I think it'll, it's going to help me kind of like maybe move in a different direction with my channel or to, or to not really care so much about like being, you know, seen or getting clicks and views as part of this kind of bread tube thing. But anyway, it just must be so rewarding. Like, I don't know, seeing their little like light bulbs go off in their heads and like mm-hmm. hearing their feedback. So so yeah, yeah, what has feedback been like? Um, like, how are people receiving it? Are there certain things that are landing a lot better with students mm. than others? Or that's that's a great question. The short answer is yes, definitely. Um, there's some there's some topics that land more easily than others. Like, I've actually found um, that one of the hardest dominant assumptions to challenge is like capitalism. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. fact that they are so ingrained with um, this notion that like capitalism is progress and that capitalism will get us out of like the crisis that we're in. Also really this like assumption, I mean, Ishmael is so relevant again, because this assumption that like, oh, it's just human nature to be destructive is like a really big roadblock. Um, and it's one that we tackle, like we also tackle logical fallacies. Um, and I'm, I want to build on that unit more for next year too, but that's like a really big logical fallacy that just like human nature is just designed to be competitive and destructive and selfish. And yeah, those things like come up time and time again. But I think that through, through experience and through like designing new activities, I'm getting the the students to think about that um, more critically than, than I was able to in the past. Mm -hmm. It's also been a really interesting time to teach about race Mm-hmm. because of everything that's happened with George Floyd. And I feel like it's really been like catapulted in um, the mainstream discourse. Like everyone, like I go into that class and that's something that I need to remind myself of constantly too, is like everyone has an opinion on that. Mm. Like they're all following, like, I don't know if we're lucky they're following like really critical leftist thinkers about all of this, but like mm-hmm. there's also people who are following like Candace Owens and Sam Harris. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, I, I really have to try to not – I like, I don't use any buzzwords. Not that even, like, they're necessarily buzzwords, but they're just words that will trigger for them an association where, like, I've lost them. Yes. You know? And, like, that is for sure important to do later, you know, because, like, I – my goal is to give them tools to engage in the conversations as they're being had in contemporary life. Like, it's not interesting if they can't, you know, engage mm-hmm. with I don't, something like Black Lives Matter, right? Um, but – I think posing that issue in these really politicized terms right away, um, I found is less effective. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's been an interesting to teach about race also as a white teacher. And I think a lot of teachers um, are afraid to talk about race for that reason. They're like, well, you know, I don't 
who am I to talk about it? Like I'm white. Um, but it's like, yeah. Uh, so you should definitely talk about it. Cause yeah, you know, one thing you know a lot about is whiteness. <laughs> well, actually, no, maybe they don't know. Maybe a lot they about don't. It because yeah. We're not, we're not taught. <laughs> we're not taught about yeah. it, but I do think that, um, and, and I do think we receive a lot of really, um, conflicting messages around that. Like as white allies, it's like, oh, am I taking up space that I shouldn't be taking up by talking about racism? Or like, is it someone else who should be talking about this? Or is it actually like my duty to bring this conversation to the forefront? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I totally had all these, inter- like, I'm still constantly asking myself questions along those lines. Um, but one thing that I've become very convinced of is that a lot of schools, I teach also in a very privileged high school for now. Mm-hmm. I do not think I will be teaching there forever. We can talk about Bob's evolution in a a second. (laughs) But yeah, one thing that I have become really convinced about is that it is not uh, productive to have like a consultant coming in and talking about an issue once or twice and then having them leave and the school can just like give themselves on the a pat on the back, like, okay, I've done my work now. So it's like Mm -hmm. when we talk about racism, we need like the one like black person to come in and talk to us about racism and talk to our students about it. And then they leave and then we can be like, okay, all good. Like really glad that we took care of racism or, you know, same thing with homophobia. Like, are we going to have like that one, like that one consultant who's like visibly gay come in and, and talk about, you know, the queer oppression in our classroom and then have them leave. And like, what message does that send to our students? If the only Mm -hmm. time that they see people with different identities um cuz cuz let's face it the overwhelming majority of teachers in the school are white and in a lot of schools like i i read a statistic like in the US that uh, i don't know just a lot a lot of school teachers like have the identity that i have like are white women mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. which is like something that should change uh, as well like systemically right absolutely it's like well you should just hire more <laughs> more diverse teachers as well but absolutely yeah yeah um But I think that like when kids, like what message are they receiving if the one time they see like a black educator in their classroom, they're here to talk about racism and then that black educator leaves and then they can kind of go back to like the way things were. But like it feels like very performative. I'm absolutely Mm -hmm. not saying that like, yeah, I think there is so much value to like, you know, black educators doing this work. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely not putting any of that into question, but I think that one of the ways that I really talk about race is I say like that I'm a white, that I'm a white teacher, that they might be wondering like, what is this person? Why is this person here to talk to us about race? Um, because she's white. And, um, I talk about how that's like a part of, that's a huge part of white supremacy and, and, and the fact that we think like whiteness is not a race that like talking about racism is just in the lane of like other people because other people have a race, right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. a Chinese person has a race or a a, like African-American person has a race, but like a white person doesn't have a, a race. And I share that, like, I didn't even realize that I had a race until I was like 20 because I just thought of myself as human, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't matter if I <laughs> And isn't France like post racial or whatever? Yes, yes. Yeah. We've solved racism here. I'm oh, so okay. glad yeah, you're asking yeah. me about it. <laughs> <laughs> um 
but that actually like since you know since I'm a white educator talking about race like my I want to talk about whiteness and like what is whiteness mm-hmm. um yeah what would professor culture say is whiteness you know yeah um and he might say things like skin color or being of European descent or that it's about genetics but actually it's about none of those things right so like we go through like all the arguments and like look at you know, pictures, articles, like whatever that like disprove that whiteness is about those three things. And then we'll have a conversation, you know, in the next session um, about like the construction of race um, and how race was actually invented to legitimize colonialism and slavery. And that Mm -hmm. we think of it as common sense. Like I asked them, how many races are there? And you know, without fail, they always say like four or five, you know, like mm-hmm, Latinx mm-hmm. people, um, white people, black people, indigenous and Asian. Yeah. And, you know, I say like, oh, that might seem like common sense to you, right? Like you might just think like, well, that's, I mean, that's just the easiest way to group people. That's just, that's not like deliberate in any way, but actually no, like let's go back and study how race was constructed mm-hmm. looking at scientific racism, like in, in the 18th and 19th century, like no, those categories were absolutely deliberately created. Yeah. And they really are the pillars, like our, our entire West, like all of our institutions um, have been built on this pillar of white supremacy and on granting this category of humans that we ascribe whiteness to as mm-hmm. being the only people with like full humanity and full access to rights, right? And, and how people move in and out of whiteness, Mm-hmm. Just, you know, all the time, um, essentially, so that whiteness can continue to, like, perpetuate itself. Yeah, if white teachers are not talking about this, that's a huge problem, you know? Like, that's why it just They're keeps... Not. It, it just goes under the radar and everyone doesn't think that it's a thing, you know what I mean? Because it's just like, yeah. no, we need, we need to deconstruct whiteness. Like, we can't have black people deconstructed for us. Like, they've already right. done all this work, like, educating us. But, like, we need to do this, you know? Right. And, like, if they can deconstruct it without us, don't you think they would have done that? Right. Like, yeah. I mean... You know what? Like the structure of the structures of oppression isn't just for, just for like marginalized people to deconstruct because like whiteness mm-hmm. gives you so much access to like power and resources, and it's been used as just a category that's synonymous with power. Yeah. For you know hundreds of years, yeah. but at the same time, race is not race is like two hundred fifty years old, right? It's not. Yeah, the construct of race is relatively recent. So that's also a really important thing to learn because I think a lot of students like are really confused about what race is. Mm-hmm. And like if we created it, we can also imagine something different, right? And yeah. like create something different. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting. Um I was wondering like if you notice, and I'm sure this is true, but like how things land with people based on their subject position. And then also, um, I guess you talked a bit about people maybe uh, reading you as like a white teacher talking about race and having some feelings about that. But I was wondering if you noticed, um, because I think you talked before about how you're received in the classroom on certain subjects versus how Mm. um, Mike is received in the classroom, Mm -hmm. like as a male educator. Um, so yeah, I was just kind of wondering about the, those kind of things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting for, for just the, for the, for the race one. Um, I think a lot of people, since they assume, I mean, I benefit from a lot of privilege in that conversation, 
just because of the assumption of neutrality. So it's like, oh, well, why is why is she even mentioning that she's white and disqualifying herself from talking about it? You know, I mm-hmm. there are different there are different reactions for sure, but but I think it's um rare for white people to like situate themselves as white in the conversation about racism or at least in these like very not at all in like activist spaces, yeah. right? But I think in in classrooms and in like history courses. Um, because we have this idea that history is just neutral, right. And we're Mm -hmm. just teaching them. And and I make that very clear. Like I'm not neutral. Um, like none of you are neutral. Yeah. But yeah, in, in the case of teaching about patriarchy and sexism. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've noticed a huge, um, and, and it's funny because so, yeah, I deliver a lot of these lessons with, um, well, Sometimes my co-facilitator is male. I mean, you brought up Mike. He also teaches um, about this topic like in his own classroom. And like we just get such different um, – we get such different reactions. Um, yeah, I, I'm like, oh, this is what it must be like on some level to teach about like white supremacy when you're a black teacher. Like constantly mm. having – like being perceived as having an agenda um, or being like overly dramatic about things that don't actually affect you. Um, the way that I teach about patriarchy is like, I really focus on masculinity too, because like in all my units, I'm like, okay, just in, just like how I talk about whiteness, when I have conversations about race, I also are like, you know, men aren't just the default masculinity is a construct. Um, Mm -hmm. and like patriarchy and sexism doesn't just affect, it's not only women who have a gender, right? It's men also. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I'm kind of going all over the place with your question. I mean, I have found myself, I show a lot of videos by men um, that talk about masculinity. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm always going back and forth between thinking like, oh, this is kind of problematic. Like maybe am I erasing the voices of like the feminists who have educated these men about these topics? Um, I mean, I try to pick videos about men who really, who who definitely talk about the fact they didn't come up with this themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I think, I think I'm questioned a lot. And interestingly enough, I'm, some of my fiercest opposition in the classroom has been from the young women in the classroom mm. who, uh, you know, we'll say like, I've never experienced sexism. Um, sexism is like a problem elsewhere, but it's not a problem here. Like, you know, I don't feel oppressed by these sexist norms. Yeah. That was so um, me in high school too. I know. I know. And I try to have empathy and I'm like, maybe this is karma because this is exactly what I would like, how I would have reacted in call in high school. Like, yeah. Feminism is bullshit. We don't need feminism. I don't need any help. I'm fine on my own. I can do anything a man can do and shut up. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the, like, one of the things that I, one of the conversations that we talked about recently is like the cool girl trope. Um, I do feel like that takes the wind out of their sails a little bit because like when you introduce the cool girl trope kind of early on is basically just like a male construction, like a male fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like a man in a hot girl body that's like not supposed to think any of this stuff has any legitimacy and like isn't difficult and like is one of the guys and blah, blah, blah. Like I feel like um, I'm thinking of this one class which I think I told you about because I was like really distraught by how the women were reacting to the unit Mm -hmm. um but yeah in the following class I decided to just 
like scrap what I had planned and talk about like the cool girl trope. And we um, generated ideas of like, like we looked at different characters and in movies um, and talked about like what it's, what the cool girl trope is. And so, yeah, I think that's like so present in these young women's is like, cause that's what they've been taught. Right. Like I'm yeah. like, the way that I'm going to be a feminist is to pretend like feminist doesn't is to say that feminist doesn't actually isn't necessary anymore. And to just try to be one of the guys and like assimilate to that. I mean, it's so me. I wish I had somebody teaching me about the cruel culture. Cause it's like, on one hand, I felt like this is just me. Like I, I am being myself, but like, I was so, Oh God, I was so, I was so misled. Oh yeah. You know, God. Yeah, me too. Me too. I was the ultimate cool girl in in high school yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, but it's like what I don't know. The, the those girls have like patriarchy just leaves so few options for women. It's like either you're not conventionally attractive, you know, or you don't invest in that like male gaze and you're treated like shit. Mhm. And really that just like not considered and, and, and I think and high school, like the social dynamics are so intense. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think that was actually my, my issue because it was like, I was like the cool girl in that, like, I didn't identify with like a lot of what was expected of me under femininity, but I was like overweight. So I didn't fit into like the male gaze. And so it was Mm. like, I was a cool girl, but also treated like shit, which, which like ended up radicalizing Mm. me because I was just like, I, then I started to realize that like, no, I actually do need feminism Mm. Um, because Mm -hmm. this is so horrible. But, but yeah, I think that's really, really common. um, Like the cool girl in high school thing, because you're just so, you're so put off by, like what society expects of you but then you don't even realize that like what you're playing into is like undermining your own liberation (laughs) yeah 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 and I think if you are conventionally attractive like it's just the the huge irony of the cool girl right is that if any of those characteristics are done by a woman who's not conventionally attractive like they're ridiculed Right. Like if you're eating hamburgers all the time and not wearing makeup and playing video games, but you're overweight and don't have perfect skin and don't have male attention, like you're a loser, you know, you're considered a loser. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that feels terrible. It feels so terrible. Yeah, totally. And, and you and I were talking about this before too. I like had this, I was just thinking in, in high school, like how, horribly women who were not conventionally you know attractive or fitting to the male gaze were treated and I was like yeah I mean our assimilation or like our desire to be validated by men isn't like a vanity thing or it's not just about wanting that male attention it's like it's a matter of survival like you're I just, oh my God, I just now cringe so much. It's our only value. Like thinking about all the jokes that my male friends made in high school and like me just like laughing along with them because I knew, I mean, not only did I not realize that it was fucked up because my mind was colonized, but I also knew that like the second I didn't think that was funny anymore or wasn't one of those girls anymore who was validated by male attention, like I would be... I would be like the butt of rape jokes and exactly. of yeah. just like 
constant degradation and mockery. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so mad. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah, that's all super, super interesting. And I'm really glad that you like introduced them to the cool girl trope at that age, because hopefully that'll set them on maybe a different trajectory um, mm-hmm. that will be much less painful than the mm-hmm. one that you and I went on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oof. yeah. Definitely. I'll, I can talk a little bit about the new evolution of Bob if yes. you want just to wrap this up. But yes, please tell us about the latest iteration of Bob. And but I know the I work, just the workshop. Yeah, I realized we did not talk about the workshop. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> hopefully some people will make it two hours into the episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, we, we can like splice it into the start if we want. Maybe like, by the way, stay tuned to the end. <laughs> if you by want to way. join an, an exclusive workshop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so along with my realization that I had with YouTube where I was like, I love scripting videos. I love doing the research. I love the pedagogy. I don't really like to present it though. Mm-hmm. I've come to a similar um, realization with teaching where I like to be in the classroom, but I don't need to be there every single day. My true passion is in pedagogy. Like I think all night and day about like what games I can design and what new ways I'm going to package an idea for my students, like what activity is going to be most powerful for them. Like I get so excited just being like, oh my God, like I just had a great, like this is what we're going to do, you know, and then spending hours and hours like designing, you know, my lesson for tomorrow. And then I'm like, ah. Damn it, but I actually have to like go and deliver it now. Like, can't someone else do it? (laughs) (laughs) And I get a lot like, yeah, I, yeah, I think the public, um, being in the public eye is not like, I can see myself doing like classes from time to time, like maybe speaking at conferences from time to time. But like, I have actually had just like a really tough year in terms of like how taxing this has felt like physically mm-hmm. and mentally to be in front of the, in front of like 30 students at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Like I know that we were talking about Mike earlier and he's a person who doesn't really like to lesson plan all that much, but like loves delivering the activities mm-hmm. um, and like loves being a facilitator. And so I felt like, oh, great. Like I can design these lessons and you can just go and give them because I don't need to be there. Or like I want to observe <laughs> what's going on, but like, yeah, yeah. And and I say, I mean, I still do like to be in the classroom and see like the aha moments of the students. And I, I do like connecting with them. But yeah, all this to say that I really like the pedagogy. I really like the research. Um, and I like to be in the classroom essentially just because it allows me to upskill the curriculum. Like and make it better. But I'm like, do I, it's interesting. I'm like, do I like to be in the classroom? Cause I genuinely like the experience or is it just because then I can tweak the activity in a way that I think is better. Yeah. 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 Um, and so my long-term vision with all of this is to create facilitator guides that are really comprehensive for all of these activities and put them out there for other educators mm-hmm. to use. And I really struggled to find good facilitator tips and guides going into this. Um, Mm -hmm. There are not that many resources out there. There are some great resources like Learning for Justice, for example, that are, but they're for content specific lessons. So like if you're a history teacher or an English teacher, 
Like there's such a wealth of resources for what texts you can use and and like what activities might be very relevant to that type of classroom. But in terms of just dialogue facilitation for a class that is not graded, that doesn't, you know, that isn't really academic in the traditional sense. Like I really feel like I had to learn everything from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just think it would have been, it would be really amazing. And I think a lot of teachers also want to do this work, but don't have the time. Like I was very privileged to have all that time beforehand where I could do a lot of research. Um, and still my teaching hours are manageable and I have a lot of extra, I have, I can spend a lot of time crafting good lessons. And I know Mm -hmm. that teachers are super overworked and might very understandably not want to spend their few off hours that they have to like survive and take care of themselves. Like coming up with a coronavirus mixer you know (laughs) or like (laughs) or or doing all doing like work that doing the work that these activities would take to craft and like educate yourself on before going inside the classroom Mm -hmm. and so I just like I really want that to be my full-time job at some point um I'm working on guides to really put these activities into writing so like full disclosure they take forever like one guide for this like disability activity that I've I mentioned I mentioned that one because I work I've been working on the guide and it's taken me like two full days basically writing up a guide for an activity that takes like an hour but it's because I don't want to just be like oh here are like here's what you need to do because like I've known that I've seen that curriculum out there and it's you know it's useful for sure but like I want to put all of the follow-up questions that you might get from the students I want to like really have like facilitator notes in there for how you can redirect a conversation or like probe further learning if one aspect is raised or like Mm -hmm. yeah like I want to make them really complete um I mean, honestly, I, I look at this guide now and I'm like, wow, if I had been given this, I would be kissing the floor that yeah. this this person walks on just because it's so useful. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I really would like to, yeah, I just have such a vision for a website where there would really be a lot of different really rich and well-explained activities that are, um, that have different tags and that are different links and, and um, yeah, so... Anyway, that's that's where Bob will be at some point. Yeah, honestly, I, I yeah, I'm so excited for this project because I would love to have guides like that. You know, sometimes if I'm designing my lectures or whatever, I'll try to go online and see like, oh, what are other people doing around this topic? And it's just impossible to find or it's impossible to find, <laughs> it's impossible like, to find. just usable pedagogy, um, honestly. So yeah, I think this is a really just fantastic project and I'm so excited to see where it takes you. So did you want to talk about the the workshop? Oh, that you're yes. Hosting? Yeah. Yes, yes. By the way, just just one one thing before we move on to that. Like I also am working with other educators who like I have a vision where they would really help me co-create some of the units that go into that go into these facilitator guides. So I think that's important that like I'm not coming up with everything myself and just drawing from my own knowledge. Like a lot of the a lot of the activities also like spotlight like and name other educators and other activists and like we watch mm-hmm. a lot of videos and yeah yeah all of that yeah so that it's usable for like all different kinds of educators too in all different kinds of settings. Mm-hmm. Um. So yes. Um. 
I'm doing a workshop that Mexi will also be joining on July 5th, 6th, and 7th. And the workshop will be like the basics of facilitation. It's three 90-minute sessions. So if you enjoyed this podcast and what I spoke about, there will be some more concrete activities for it's for educators who want to be facilitators in the classroom, like no matter what you teach. So it's really not just about it's it's not just for teachers who have you know, an advisory type of classroom and they can do these activities. It's also really the basics where like if you're a science teacher or a math teacher or like an activist and you facilitate like a group, that like group mm-hmm. discussions about something, it's really applicable. Also, it's going to be about like the basics of dialogue and listening, like empathetic versus um, like generous listening versus predatory listening and mm-hmm. some basic concepts about like trigger responses and like cognitive dissonance some like very practical facilitator tips of like, you know, how to deal with resistance in the classroom, like what kinds of questions are good questions, ways to connect student comments. And then the third session is about um, that dominant assumption of neutrality that I was talking Mm -hmm. about and some of the Mm -hmm. tools that I've found useful um, and, and um, like, that my co-facilitator has found useful in terms of uh, tackling master narratives in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're interested in joining, email us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> S- send us an email at veganvanguardpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And let us know that you're interested in joining the workshop and then we will send you the information. Um, there is a cost to it. However, Marine can maybe feel yep. this about the sliding scale. <laughs> yes, this is exactly the what I was about to interrupt you with. Um, so the cost for three 90-minute sessions is 185 euros. Um, it's going to be me and another very experienced educator. Um, and every person will also be getting a facilitator's guide at the end of the workshop. Um, however, if you cannot afford that price... Uh, the price is on like a sliding scale and really um, we're operating on a basis of like pay what you can. We want this workshop to be accessible to the most number of people and especially like just the most passionate people. Um, So definitely don't let cost be a barrier. Um, If you're committed and wanting to learn about this, please email us and we can definitely work out, work something out. Mm-hmm. yeah yes so yeah i can't wait for this i can't wait to join these sessions i think it's going to be awesome um yeah my partner's going to join as well so we're just Ooh. super stoked cool. so yeah everyone email us if you want to join the workshop i think it's going to be fantastic yes yeah 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 well thank you so much for coming on is there anything else you wanted to to talk about at all um in relation to all this mm-hmm. i think that's it I think I've been blabbering on for quite a while now. (laughs) Well, this was awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing all of this. I know everyone's going to be super interested in what you've been doing and like really excited about all of this. So yeah, well, thanks for listening. And thank you for interviewing me, Maxie. (laughs) Yeah, I've gotten really good at interviewing. um, You really have. Kind of like soloing the podcast. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I've really worked on my interview skills. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You are such a good interviewer. I always, um, I always think about that when I listen to the vegan Vanguard episodes. 
Oh, thank you so much. And what a privilege it is to get to experience that <laughs> as an interviewee. Amazing. Okay, well, yeah. I love you so much. Dish, thanks for coming so on the much. show. <laughs> and we will see everyone next time. Bye. Bye.